Well, welcome uh, to the Movements Podcast. We're speaking again to uh, Nathan in South Asia, and uh, welcome to you, Nathan. Yeah, Steve. Uh, glad to be again with you. And this is uh, this is our fifth in the series on um, church a uh, church multiplication plan. Nathan, just remind us what are some of the key uh, topics or issues that we've looked at so far. Yeah, well, today we're going to talk through leadership multiplication, and honestly, we won't be able to do that without tying the whole series back together. Uh, um, because I believe if you go back and listen, or certainly when you look at your New Testament, this topic should call, could could be read into every podcast we've done, and I believe every uh, intentional step Jesus took in his in his uh, earthly ministry. Uh, you can see them, the leadership development and modeling and equipping across all of Paul and Acts, uh, his epistles as well. But leadership multiplication ties the what we call the five parts of a church planning plan or church planning movement plan together. Mm-hmm. So if you think back with me to entry strategy, it wasn't that Jesus entered all the towns. It was Jesus multiplied himself through the sending of the twelve, Luke chapter 9 through the sending of the 70, Luke chapter 10. Leadership multiplication was his plan from the very first day. When we talked about gospel presentation, it wasn't that Jesus entered the city called Sychar in John chapter 4. It was that he found a local woman through whom to multiply, in which case he was, he was utilizing a local leader, even a woman with such a sinful past and, and uh, hurtful reputation. Uh, this woman, he used her, and thus he multiplied his effort through her. And I believe he demonstrated that ethos, that plan, to his disciples who were, uh, who were just bystanders, who were just watching that day. Uh, in discipleship, we talked about the need to push obedience and authority into the hands of every believer as they take up their priesthood for the first time. That's the, that's the core of Matthew 28, that every believer would go Make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, in church formation, we talked about the, the, the reset button that the church represents as believers are organized to work together, to wrestle with each other in their own uh, morality and their own theology, but also to become a sending base of new leaders as the, for the first time from the harvest comes what's needed for the future harvest. And it's a reset button for leadership development, ultimately, so that the, the, this year's harvest could be organized and could send workers out into next year's fields. And that depends on leadership formation, or excuse me, leadership reproduction and multiplication. So, in a sense, that farming illustration of entry, sowing the seed, nurturing the new growth, cutting and bundling the harvest, that is the first four parts entry, gospel, discipleship, church formation. And now leadership multiplication ties all of those together because it's not one, two, three, four, and then we'll think about leaders. We've been doing leadership development from the beginning, just as Jesus was. And that's what it takes to multiply. And Nathan, um, because a lot of different images can come to our minds when we hear the word leader. We can think of someone who's, you know, properly trained and ordained or somebody who's an elder or holds an office what 
What do you mean when you, you talk about multiplying leaders? Well, you know, there's, uh, there's that old uh, description of uh, a leader is, needs, what does a leader need to know? What does a leader need to do? What does a leader need to be, you know? Uh, knowing, being, doing. That really is a part of what we're looking at. It's not just, we're not just looking for baptisms and church starts. We're looking for fruit, that fruit that will last, that comes through abiding, right? In which case their being is being transformed. Their character, their their motives, right? It, also the doing, a lot of what we've oriented and we believe the path to being is a matter of, of doing as well. In which case, uh, we've got those obediences that we've rolled out, that we've expected, that we've held them accountable to. And then there's there's content. There is a knowing aspect as well. So we're going to model for them all along the way. We're going to go two by two, do nothing alone, so that we can model for them. We can teach them one-on-one. We can help them deal with their barriers. All of that is a knowing aspect. Uh, and we're going to point them to Scripture throughout for as the source, uh, along with the Holy Spirit's voice in their heart, uh, to bring change and transformation across all three areas, knowing, being, doing. And uh, we're talking about the total man in a sense, total leader. But uh, all those work together, and I believe uh, it's not that, you, that you, uh, you come to peace in your heart concerning your disciple, okay, now they're knowing, now they're being, now they're doing, now we're going to empower them. I don't believe that paradigm will get you anywhere. The empowering happens along the way, and it actually is the catalyst for what they know, what they are being, and what they're doing. You have to take chances with disciples. That's the fact. And I think you see that with Jesus. How many times He sent His disciples to do something, to represent Him, and they, they, they didn't live up to His standard. Obviously, He's perfect, right? Mm. But... Uh, he was willing to take risks with them, empowering them, pushing authority to them. Even as early as Mark chapter 3, uh, he gave them authority to go and to preach the kingdom, rebuke demons, uh, represent him fully in the teaching on the kingdom. And certainly there were th- times when, I don't know that the Lord was, was frustrated with them, but the times when they fell short of what he was modeling for them. Uh, and yet the authority was there from the beginning. So all of these things roll out together. You're not going to multiply and get to the knowing, being, doing that you want without taking risks in the, in the areas of responsibility and authority. And it'll get uh, misused, but that's okay. That, that problems create opportunities, like we said last time in our podcast. Uh, Nathan, I'm just uh, wondering if, if you could think of an example in your own experience of where you've taken those uh, Jesus uh, model and the principles that he practiced and and where you've grown or multiplied uh, a leader or some leaders uh, out of a out of a church planning situation can you just sort of flesh it out a bit for us in terms of what you did and and, and what that was like yeah it'll be a little bit uh, cumbersome for me to, to go through but because I'm going to try to think through and, and avoid using names and locations. Forgive me for that a second. But we uh, typically we would we've approached different uh, churches for training. Sometimes pre-existing early on in our ministry, we approached a lot of traditional churches. Maybe they hadn't reproduced in a while. Uh, one brother we'll call him Kumar. Um, Kumar had. Uh, 
had an, had a pre-existing church in his home that was maybe 50 or 60 believers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kumar uh, had a vision to get to 100 church starts in his life. He really, uh, that was what the Lord, he believed the Lord had put that on his heart. And truth is, he was working as hard as he could. I think he'd been working at it for more than a decade when we met him. There was a church in his home, and he, he would point to another 10 church starts in different places. But he'd really come to a place of frustration. Uh, he believed that his life was moving, rolling along, and he wasn't based on the things he was currently doing, the pace he was currently seeing, he wasn't going to get to his goal. And he was also, ultimately, Steve, he talks about in his testimony, praying to the Lord, saying, you know, Lord, uh, if I'm not going to accomplish this vision, that I, this commitment I've made to you for 100 church starts, either release me from it or show me how to get there. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's it happens that that's when we met him. And uh, we began to wrestle with a particular doctrine in his heart. Uh, and, and we did that one-on-one. We did that in training settings. But he had to come to grips with 1 Peter chapter 2. And 1 Peter 2, I remember clearly conversations we had. Uh, it deals with the priesthood of the believer. And that doctrine is built uh, not just on that text, but that's, that's where Peter really succinctly states that the job of every believer is to represent God before man and to bring them together. That's the work of a priest. And he had, for Kumar, that meant he had to wrestle and to reevaluate how he viewed every believer in his church. These days, uh, after several years of working together, these days Kumar uses Ephesians 4. He draws two little triangles. I can see it in my mind. He draws two little triangles on the board in his training or in his vision casting, asking the church or his audience, does the congregation work through the pastor in order to reach the world? Or does the pastor, the local leader, work through the congregation to equip the believers for the works of ministry? Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he has, the point being, he over these years, by taking some chances with simple believers, pushing them out, helping them to understand their own identity, he has multiplied, uh, oh, ten times. He really is that, that 30, 60, 100 multiplier uh, that we see in Mark 4. He's multiplied through these believers by them taking up their identity, him empowering them fully to go and to do the works of ministry. They've gone out and church planting has rolled out fourth, fifth generation consistently uh, in the people he touches. And beginning in his own church, that church has become hundreds of churches at this point. Uh, because the believers that were serving some uh, some function in the church, suddenly they were empowered to be the church, to be the embodiment of the Great Commission that all authority had been given to them to go and to do. And honestly, they went out in that authority and reproduced. I could give you any number of stories from his disciples, uh, individuals that we've grown to know and to love, uh, people who previously were street sweepers, uh, you know, uh, their offering would equal, you know, uh, uh, a dollar a week type of thing. Uh, as they gave their 10% into the church, suddenly, when they grasp their identity, they're able to start church in their own home. They're able to win their neighbors. They're able to take up the responsibilities of, of leadership and move on beyond Kumar's authority and abilities to a, 
to an authority vested in their own home that also began to reproduce other generations of disciples and churches. Mm. And it's been a pleasure to walk with brothers like that uh, throughout our time here in uh, South Asia. And honestly, Steve, when we talk about leadership multiplication, uh, these days we're tracking more than two dozen streams of church planting that has gone beyond fourth generation. Means someone we coached or one ourselves started a church, and the disciples were sent out from that church to start a church that started churches that started churches. Really, that Second Timothy two two principle that Paul told Timothy to invest in reliable men who would also teach others. Fourth generation there in that verse. We're tracking more than two dozen streams of churches that have gone beyond fourth generation at this point. And it rises and falls based on leadership multiplication. Are we able to push authority and responsibility out for brothers and sisters that are the fruit of our ministry take up that responsibility and authority and go out and multiply again? That's what we're talking about when, it take, when we get to movement. Truth is, Steve, you could do the first four parts, entry, gospel, discipleship, and church formation. You could follow all, be tracking everything we've said up to now, but if you're not multiplying leaders, you're not going to get to movement. So it's not just about what, again, not just about what you can do related to entry, gospel, discipleship, and church formation. You could do all those things and work a church planter to pastor model and never get past addition based on your own abilities. We're talking about the need to bring along others in responsibility and authority throughout those first four parts so that our momentum would exist beyond just our abilities so that we could truly multiply those first four parts in all the fields uh, of a given target. So, Nathan, when you, you look at a guy like Kumar or you look across those multiple streams of uh, of church planting, what what stays with you in terms of what it takes to pull off the multiplication of leaders and workers who make disciples and, and plant churches? What what really be, hits you hard? There'd be several things, Steve, and I, I appreciate your patience with this question. Uh, let me just start with there needs to be the perceived need. <laughs> That's kind of redundant. There needs to be the perceived need for new leaders. If your target and your plan is one church, you're probably not going to multiply leaders. You know, we've seen that over and over in our ministry. The vision that's tied or t- that's tucked away in the heart of the network leader or the church planter, if it's going to determine how leaders are reproduced. Meaning, if a man considers one church enough, or the vision, if he even believes that one church could reach an entire population segment, he doesn't have the perceived need for new leaders in his heart. In which case, you're not going to see them. And it's not just true for the church planter. The perceived need for new leaders has to be there in front of the lay people, the local believers as well. If a, uh, we've said it other ways, if, a per, if you give a chance to a person to sit down and do nothing, they most likely will. They'll most likely take that opportunity and let you do the work. 
What I'm saying is the church planter needs to foster or catalyze the the need for new leaders, the expectation, the he has to present the 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 necessity of leadership multiplication in everything he does and says. If they if the local believer perceives the need for new leaders, they'll step forward. If you need more worship leaders, they'll step forward and express their gifting. If you need more people able to disciple and teach the Word, they'll step forward and take that responsibility. But it's almost a life or death situation. If it's not needed, you're not going to reproduce it. In which case, the church planter who wants to multiply has to figure out opportunities where the lay people believe, I don't step forward, there's nobody who will. Right? Necessity for new leaders is a prerequisite for multiplying new leaders. So we go all the way back to the brutal facts in our envision. The church planter has to cast that envision repeatedly. It's not just our church. Our church will not reach our target. Our church will not transform this community or this location because there are multiple communities inside that we are not touching. So we need someone to step forward for this target. We need someone to step forward into this community. We need someone to step across this barrier. Mm. In that sense, vision casting creates the necessity, that ethos or that expectation that new leaders must emerge if we're going to reach our end vision. Uh, So that's vision casting, right? Creating the need for new leaders. And it has to constantly, it's like a drum, you have to keep pounding and keep campaigning. Because the moment you give people a chance not to take responsibility and authority, they'll accept that and they'll sit down and do nothing. Honestly, that's one of the challenges in the the church formation and and church uh, uh, paradigms, church planning paradigms that that I grew up in. You know, uh, most of the work is done by a few and that's acceptable. So we create this consumer culture where people come and our churches exist to serve the believers rather than that the believers exist to serve the kingdom vision that must march forward to the end and must outlive and outstrip and go beyond even our church to bring the kingdom that His kingdom might come in all geography and all peoples. Somehow, we've got to break that paradigm, flip it on its head, that every believer exists to push the kingdom to the end. That's the vision. That's the that's the kingdom of God. And do, do we do that by... Casting vision for the necessity for new leaders. Okay, that's a very helpful insight, and it sounds like it's it's more than just new leaders for this local area or this local ministry, but the vision that's being cast uh, takes people beyond themselves and beyond the scope of just one local church to a wider harvest. Uh, and that's right. Yeah. It requires risk along the way. You People are going to step into that invitation for new leadership, and then you're going to find that you'll have, there'll be a Judas in your midst from time to time. Uh, for that matter, there'll be a Peter, James, and John, who on the night Jesus was arrested, they broke every one of the Sermon on the Mount disciplines, you know. Hmm. Do not murder, they gave it a shot with Peter and his sword, you know. Uh, when you pray, pray this way. And when they, when he called them to the task, they slept. Mm. You know, it's going to be messy. There'll mm. be risks and you'll get burnt. But you have to be willing to take some of those chances. And 
The necessity needs to be there, the willingness to release responsibility and authority, even if it means taking a risk, even if it means getting burnt by some who prove to be false or some who prove to be immature. Either way, you've got to be willing to move forward. Uh, you asked the question, what does it take? I'll give you a second principle if you're ready for it. Hmm. Um, you have to be willing to, to redefine success in your heart. You know, again, we have this onslaught in our culture, especially the Western culture, that defines better as bigger. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our vision for church planting and, and church success these days is that our church would grow. In a sense, our influence, our kingdom would grow. Uh, but but there's, there's different ways to grow influence. It's not just that more people listen to you. The think through the influence of a grandfather. That success could be generations of leaders. That your influence could roll on and even outlive you because it's vested in your son and your grandson and your great-grandchildren. In a sense, then, that by the time you get to that fourth generation, you would be willing to, you'd be even able to pass from the scene and the influence would continue. To, in order to get to that stage, you've got to reevaluate your audience. You've got to reevaluate your definition of success. And let me give you an example. We talked early on in our podcast about Mark chapter 1. Jesus disciples coming to him the morning after all of the town had been healed, gathered at the door, and they said to Jesus, everyone is looking for you. You remember that passage? Mm. Jesus' public ministry was off to a, a great start in Mark chapter 1. The crowd would certainly have continued to grow, but bigger isn't necessarily Jesus' definition of success. So he says, no, 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 I've just spent time with the Father, let us go to other towns and places, for that is why I've come. And you notice the pronoun us there. He was, his paradigm was to call the few out of the crowd that they might be with him, and that by Mark chapter 3, he might commission them to go out also and to preach with full authority. So, so Steve, you realize Jesus had a public ministry, the crowds that followed him everywhere he went, but he also had a private ministry that of, of, of the few that he had called that he intentionally committed himself to. And through those few, the world was changed. Through those few, he multiplied himself. Uh, think through that public and private. It's not the crowds that change the world. It's not our public ministry uh, that's going to bring transformation or that's going to bring multiplication. Typically, however, that is the, the, the picture of ministry that we consider success. Mm. means very rarely do you see a picture of success that shows one man walking on a road with a few disciples. Rather, we see the one man standing on a stage with, uh, with the Astrodome, you know, this huge congregation in front of him. Maybe that was a little too pointed a reference mm. there. Since, uh, but... You get the point. We think of large crowds as success, as influence. And Jesus did something very counterculture. He dismissed regularly, he dismissed the large crowds. Though he did give them a taste of the kingdom, he dismissed the large crowds and committed himself to the few that he had chosen that were faithful to follow him, to obey him, ultimately to 
to go out and reproduce the things he had modeled and that he had instructed. Uh, for example, he sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place he himself was about to go. To do what? To preach the kingdom. Uh, he did that with the twelve and they multiplied. Evidently, he did that with the seventy to the 120, to the 500 who witnessed his resurrection, uh, to the 5,000, not in Acts chapter 2, but very shortly after that, I believe it Acts 4, that the, the number of believers had grown to more than 5,000. How? Because they had a vision for gathering the few, investing themselves fully, and that few continuing to multiply. That's the difference between an addition-oriented ministry and a multiplication-oriented ministry. You have to develop the private ministry that carries the potential to change the world. And that means deep investment in the few. Mm. And how does that work when, when at the ground level, uh, when, when you're out, uh, uh, you know, entering a new field, sharing the gospel, when you're, uh, you know, training those early disciples and gathering them into uh, to form church... Uh, what's what's happening in that day-to-day level for the the worker who is, um, you know, the pioneer in 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 a, in a new in a new area? Well, honestly, that uh, you have I, I don't need to speak too too much of that fact because we have case studies written. They're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mm. Look what, how Jesus was spending His days with His disciples. Look at how He was offering them opportunities to obey. Not just to the twelve, but to the crowd. Uh, it's, it's amazing, again, so many countercultural examples. So many things that counterintuitive, you know. We think, oh, bring them in. Let's get, let's get the crowd together. Let's see how many followers we can get. For Jesus, it was things like challenging the crowd... If any man would come after me, he must take up his cross. Now that that doesn't seem like it's going to get us to our our definition of success, which is bigger is better. He seems to dis- have dispersed the crowd for that. You mean to follow you? I need to die. Who's gonna Who's gonna just jump onto that ship? You know. Uh, another time, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. I tell you, the true bread is is my flesh. So thus. Here is my flesh. It's real food. Eat my flesh. What? Drink my blood. Are you kidding me? And they said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And it says that many left him, right, and followed him no more. Peter came to him. He said, he looked at Peter and said, are you also going to leave me? Peter's reply, out of the twelve, uh, where can we go? You have the words of life, right? So, day to day... Jesus is actually upping the bar for those disciples, for those twelve. Saying, you say you want to follow me, are you willing to die for me? To die for this cause? To die for me as your Lord? You say you want to follow me, are you willing to follow and obey even when you don't understand fully the teaching I might be giving? In another context, uh, in Mark 4 in fact, he teaches the crowds in parables so that they might be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. And then he turns to the twelve and says, the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you. Now, again, a filter. Daily as he walks through his life, he's checking their heart for that Holy Spirit investment. 
Is the Father prompting them to follow and obey? Are they, in fact, the ones that the Father had given Him? Um, a lot of times we think, let's figure out a way to, to make the crowd feel welcome. Jesus went to extraordinary lengths to make the crowd uncomfortable in order to identify whether it was through an action or an expectation of obedience, through a teaching in which He filtered as the Holy Spirit bringing illumination in their heart, or through a hard saying in which he's, he's checking their level of commitment. Are you willing to follow me even to death? I think uh, you're, you, you need to look into the letters, or excuse me, the gospel accounts, and considering, consider them a playbook for the question you just asked. How did Jesus day to day invest in those twelve? I think he modeled certain things. He assisted them as they went out. He watched them in ascending and a recalling. And ultimately, don't forget, he left them with the, with the commission at some point to go and to do likewise. Uh, Steve, I think that's one of the, the realities. If I could point to a central passage that, that disciple makers need to come to grips with, I would point to Mark chapter 3. That this is, uh, I'm, I'm kind of giving you the long answer here for yeah. the question no, you asked. Good. But, mm. Look at Mark chapter 3. Realize, first of all, it's chapter 3, right? It's early on in His ministry. But Jesus went up on the mountainside. He called to Him those He wanted. I'm not, I might be misquoting a little bit. This is just from memory. But that they, that they might be with Him and that He might send them out to preach, right? Mm. He, gave, he gave them authority to cast out demons. He gave them authority to represent Him fully. He gave them authority to preach the kingdom. And when, as he sent them out, every time there was ascending, there was also a regathering in which they would come and they would debrief, in a sense, how did it go? What challenges did you face? Sometimes they would say, we found a demon that we couldn't cast out. And he would, he would coach them. This type can only come out by prayer. In some cases, he would, they would come back and say, we found a man of peace in the village you sent us to. In which case, uh, my assumption is he would prioritize his travels because they were villages he himself was about to go to. He worked through them. And there was this initial commitment to the few. And then it was almost like breathing. That they might come and be with Him. He pulled them in to be almost to abide in Him, you know. And then there was a, an exhale uh, where He would send them out to preach and to practice the things He had just invested in them. To practice not just the teaching of the kingdom, but the authority to walk in that kingdom as a as a full representative of that kingdom and of that king. Of course, Jesus and the Father. So, that is our discipleship model. Uh, you found those few out of the crowd, commit to them. And then, let your discipleship be as become as natural as breathing. Pull them in and push them out. Mm. Pull them in and push them out. Now, a lot of brothers have gone to great lengths to describe and put practical steps to that, that pattern of breathing in and out of disciples uh, with calling them to, in, to invest in them but also sending them out to teach. These days, Steve, you have fallen in love with the terminology and the, the, the attempt to explain that process that we call T for T, training for trainers. There's some... Uh, if you want to see practical steps on how not just the content that you should invest, 
or the vision you should invest, but what's the process of mentorship look like? Training for trainers has, has taken us steps ahead in how to express that content, or excuse me, that process. And of course, they refer to three parts. When you breathe them in, when you call them to be with you, there needs to be pastoral care and accountability, the first third of your meeting. Now, I express it a little differently than our friend Steve Smith and, mm. and uh, Ying Kai in their book, T for T, but, but bear with me. The first third is pastoral care and accountability. So when they come in to be with you, ask them, how did the previous assignment go? Mm. Those things that we're pursuing obedience in, how did it go for you? And expect and anticipate challenges, problems, uh, barriers that maybe they're having to wrestle with. That's the point. You see challenges in them obeying? Do you give them the pastoral care that helps them deal with that barrier, remove that barrier in community with each other? Maybe one brother has overcome the barrier and can serve as an example. Maybe one brother found encouragement from a certain passage of Scripture that, that addresses the challenge that another brother is facing. Wrestle with that in community. Deal with each other on a pastoral, on a heart level uh, with accountability and pastoral care. Secondly, a second third of your gathering with them, let there be a new teaching and uh, practice of that new teaching. Now that second third is, the, is, is going to move them forward, going to deal with the next steps. Okay, you've obeyed this first third. We've dealt with those issues. A second third. As we move forward, we need to address a new, a new obedience, a new opportunity to obey. And we're going to make that uh, just a very measurable task because we're going to practice that task also. Mm. So maybe they've given baptism to the, for the first time in their church, okay? In their new church start. Okay, let's, let's go through offering. Having shown a uh, uh, an example or a a willingness to obey the command of baptism, let's move forward with another command and give them that next Acts 2 element that we dealt with in discipleship or church formation. We're going to practice that command as, uh, as realistically as possible. Give everyone the opportunity to practice in order to build confidence, build you know, competence in how to move forward right? in, in obeying that command. Do that uh, two by two. Do that in a large group. Give people one on one-on-one, -on -one, the opportunity to practice. And then finally, the third part of your meeting, your T4T setting, I, I refer to that as your planning and commissioning, in which case you're going to pray over the brothers, you're going to make real action steps for where and when they're going to obey, mm. and you're going to push them out in the full authority of our Lord and Savior, that authority that was given to us in Matthew 28, that He is with them even to the end of the age. And you send them out again. They go out and they obey. They come back, so that breathing is taking place, the, the coming and going, right, of discipleship and leadership multiplication. And when they come back, you start again. How did it go? Pastoral care accountability. New teaching and practice. Planning and commissioning. These are the three-thirds of a T4T process that gets your leadership multiplying across all of the five parts of the church planning multiplication plan. So your, your process will deal at times with entry. Where are you going? Who are you? Have you found a man of peace? It'll deal with gospel. What are you sharing? What barriers are there in the hearts of the audience to keep them from believing? Let's deal with pastoral care accountability. Let's deal with a new teaching and practice on how to do it better. Let's plan and commission related to gospel presentation. Who are you going to share with this week? 
Where are you going to go to share? Right? Go in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to work T for T, that process of in relation to discipleship, in relation to church formation. And now we've come full circle because as they do those things, they're also going to start identifying out of the crowd those faithful in their own ministry that they need to commit to. And now you have a second generation. Now this is a bit of a mind game here, Steve. I don't want to go too fast. But you can see clearly as they start to obey, as they come and go in that T for T process of Mark chapter 3, they will also begin to identify a crowd and out of the crowd the few who they need to commit to. In which case, in the kingdom, you have grandchildren spiritually for the first time. Mm. And this is how generations are born. And it rolls out, it rolls over on itself, generation after generation, as each each people have the script, which is the five parts. Where are we going to go next? Well, understand the five parts. How are we going to move forward? Understand T for T and what it takes to multiply leaders. Uh, in the three-thirds. Mm. So you have a process and you have a script that will keep you on track over time and multiply you through generations. Well, that's been very helpful, Nathan, just to... Uh, I think it stretched our vision for... That's probably the thing that really stayed with me, that uh, it stretched our vision for multiplying workers. Typically, we're thinking about it for our local context. You're saying, no, it's about the Great Commission... And, um, and that's the thing that, that sort of gives energy to multiplication at every level of the five parts of a, of a, of a church planting plan or church multiplication plan. And uh, so thank you for that. And um, next week uh, or next interview is going to be our last one in this series. And what are we going to look at next time? Well, again, we've come full circle. We started with Envision. I think next one, next week is a passage of Scripture that's, or next time we get together. Passage of Scripture very dear to my heart. What were the key results that Paul saw in place in his Acts journeys that convinced him to write in Romans that now there's no place left for me to work in these regions? In a sense, if we can discern that from Scripture, we've got our key results for our exit strategy for our exit to Spain, if you will, just like Paul found. That's, uh, that's our topic next time, and it'll wrap up uh, this series. Great. Okay, well, thank you. We look forward to it, Nathan. God bless, Steve. You too. Bye now.